Is this working? So good morning, everyone. If I could get your attention. So one of the nice things when the department chair and then uh, Dr. Little, who organizes Grand Rounds, are not here, I'm sort of sort of feel like the next in line to do uh, introductions. But I'm, I'm especially glad to be the one introducing Sam this morning because I was going to say whether I, I shouldn't really say that I have favorite residents, but uh, <laughs> uh, Sam, just to, to give you her, her background, she uh, started out at the University of Colorado at Boulder where she was in the honors program majoring in molecular, cellular, and developmental biology subsequently graduating magna cum laude in biology from Boston University, and then getting her M MPH at the Center for Evaluative Sciences here at Dartmouth, going on from there to uh, get her DO degree from the University of New England College of Osteopathic Medicine. Uh, she's held a number of um, student leadership positions during her training and received a number of awards. Um, we know her as someone who's really, uh, as a resident, has been a bit of a force of nature of making change. Um, you know, uh, I'd like to hire hire her for uh, permanently for her uh, changes that she's made in EDH. Which, to be able to make changes in EDH that are substantive, is really <laughs> quite a tribute. Um, she was embarrassed when uh, I was. Michelle actually told me what I should say about her because she was embarrassed to tell me herself, and that is that she is the recipient of um, the Blue Ribbon First Place Award for her poster presentation at the Eastern Pediatric Society for uh, Society for Pediatric Research on the topic uh, similar to what she's talking about today. And then uh, she also has two poster presentations at the PAS. For a resident to do that, have three uh, sessions um, in academic societies is just really outstanding. So, Sam. Thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Can everybody hear me okay? Yeah? Okay. Um, so thank you for coming. The title of my talk today is Measuring Medication, a Study of Variation in Pediatric Prescribing. And I'm going to be focusing primarily on this research that we've been working on, looking at variation in pharmacotherapy among children in northern New England. But I also want to talk a little bit more broadly about understanding variation in healthcare in general and why that's important. So the, the talk today is really inspired by my work on this, which is the Dartmouth Atlas of Children's Healthcare in Northern New England. And before we talk about this, I just want to get a quick show of hands. I know this is sort of old-fashioned. I don't have the audience response clicker system. But just a quick show of hands as to how many people have heard of this or are familiar with this. Okay, good. So more than I thought. That's great. So this is an atlas that was published in December of 2013, so not too long ago. And it's a project that was really led by one of our own pediatric faculty members, Dr. David Goodman, who's here with us today. 
this atlas, we'll talk a lot more about sort of the background and methodology of the atlas as we go along, but I just want to give sort of a brief overview. Um, so the motivation for this was that Dr. Goodman has spent a lot of his career with the team over at TDI looking at variation in adult healthcare delivery. So looking at healthcare, how healthcare is delivered over small geographic regions and over different populations, and then looking at the differences in healthcare, what drives those differences and the outcomes in those, of those differences. Data has been hard to come by in the pediatric population, and so fortunately, Dr. Goodman was able to sort of overcome some of those challenges and publish this atlas just this winter. So I want to talk about this for a couple of reasons today. So first of all, it's my research, so I find it interesting, and I hope that you all will as well. Um, but secondly, because I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on over at TDI that doesn't always make its way here to the hospital. And this is a project that has a direct impact on our patient population, so kids in northern New England. And then I think we'll start some interesting discussions about the way that we deliver healthcare. So first I wanna talk briefly about how I got involved. I know this is a question that's sort of asked a lot at the resident grand rounds, and for me it was kind of by chance. Um, so this is a picture of Dr. Darnell, who's not here, I don't think, to be embarrassed by it this morning. But Dr. Darnell <laughs> sent out an email at the beginning of my second year of residency to all the residents asking if we had found an academic project yet. And I think the residents are familiar with these emails and thinking, oh boy, we still haven't found a project. Um, at the time, I was about eight months pregnant when I received this email, so I thought, what a great time to get involved in a research project. I'll be out on maternity leave, I'll have so much time on my hands, this will be great. So I was wrong, I was very wrong, but I got motivated to sort of find a project. And so then shortly thereafter, I got an email from this gentleman, who um, most of you will recognize as Dr. Chapman, although he looks a lot like Batman in this photo. And Dr. Chapman mentioned that he had a personal friend and a professional colleague by the name of Dr. Nancy Morden, who's also with us today, who's a pharmacoepidemiologist and a family physician. And he mentioned that she was working on this pediatric atlas over at TDI, and I thought this would be a great project for me to be involved in, having done my MPH before I went to medical school and then kind of trying to get back tied into TDI. So we met, and the rest is history. Fortunately, it took a little bit of time to get the data together, so most of this happened after maternity leave, which is probably for the best. So our objectives for today are first to review the history of research on regional variation in healthcare, and we can't do that without talking about the Dartmouth Atlas Project, which is really kind of the big project dedicated to this type of research. We're going to discuss the importance of understanding variation, both as a general concept and then specific to the pediatric population. And then we'll talk about the results of our work. So we'll describe variation in pharmacotherapy among the pediatric population of northern New England. And we'll talk about both the general pediatric population and then a smaller population that I focus on, which is children with autism spectrum disorders. I want to just mention briefly that we're limiting ourselves to pharmacotherapy today. That's not all that's in the atlas. There's a lot of other interesting information in the atlas. I think Dr. Goodman's planning on giving a grand rounds at some point in the future on this. Um, Dr. Ralston's also working on this data, so you may be hearing a little bit more from her as well. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that this information is actually available online. So if you find this interesting and have some spare time, you can check out our data and some of the results just by Googling this, and you can um, find it all online. <coughs> So we'll start by talking a bit about the history of variation research. And this is a painting of Dr. Jack Wenberg, who's really the father of this type of work and is widely considered to be a pioneer in healthcare for kind of changing the way that we look at healthcare delivery and measuring the type of healthcare that we're delivering. So he's widely considered to be a Dartmouth guy. He's been here for a long time, but he's not always been here. So he um, graduated from medical school at McGill in 1961. 
And then he went on to pursue an internal medicine residency down at Johns Hopkins. And while he was there, he became really interested in epidemiology. So during his internal medicine residency, he also completed an MPH. And then um, a couple of years later, so in 1967, he moved to Vermont, where he took a position as the director of the Northern New England Regional Medical Program. And in this role, he was tasked with making sure that the people of Northern New England had access to quality health care and kind of the latest and greatest in medical advancements. Um, he was not in this position for long when he realized that despite having a really homogenous population here, that, here in Northern New England that we're all aware of, the, the health care that was being delivered across this region varied really widely. And so he started to wonder what was behind these patterns and what were the impact of these types of patterns. So this is a photo of Dr. Wenberg's kids posing in front of the Wenberg family farm um, on the town line of Stowe, Vermont and Waterbury, Vermont in the late 1960s. And I mentioned that he had taken this professional interest in variation, but he also found some personal implications of this type of work. So his children went to school in the Waterbury School District, where he noted in his professional role that about 20% of children had tonsillectomy prior to the age of 15. One mile up the road in Stowe, the tonsillectomy rate was about 60%. So there was a threefold variation there. And so he started to wonder, was there something about the kids in Stowe that made them sicker or made them more prone to having these surgical procedures? And so he started to really look into this over a period of time. What he found was that there really weren't patient level difference to, differences to explain this variation. He found, as is not surprising, that there were variable costs. So communities in Vermont that were performing more of these procedures had higher costs. He found some poor outcomes associated with tonsillectomy, so he did see some post-operative deaths over the period of time that he was studying this. And he really started to wonder, so why is this happening? Um, he took this information to the Vermont Medical Association, and they then took the information to the providers who were performing these procedures, so to otolaryngologists, and the thing that happened next was interesting. So the communities that had previously had high rates of tonsillectomy, so Stowe included, quickly reduced their rates of tonsillectomy. Stowe, I mentioned, had been about 60%, and they reduced quickly to about 10%. And the rate of tonsillectomy across the state of Vermont became much more standardized. And so Dr. Weinberg wondered, I wonder if just sort of letting people know what their practices look like is enough to cause them to sort of evaluate their practice patterns and make changes where appropriate. He published his work in pediatrics in 1977, and this is a quote from that publication that I think kind of um, captures his, his sort of passion for this topic. So it says, for half a century, the tonsil has been the target of a large-scale, uncontrolled surgical experiment, tonsillectomy. So Dr. Weinberg continued to be inspired by this project and this type of work and ultimately dedicated his career to studying these types of differences in healthcare. So I mentioned the Dartmouth Atlas earlier, and I think most people in the room are probably familiar with the Atlas. And this is really a culmination of years of Dr. Weinberg's work. So this was initially published in the mid-1990s. And prior to the publication of the atlas that I mentioned, the pediatric atlas that we just published, this has been limited to adult data. So this uses Medicare data to look at delivery of healthcare across the United States and to sort of measure differences in healthcare delivery and the impact of that. Interestingly, this was created as a resource for healthcare reform under the Clinton administration. Uh, and when healthcare reform kind of went south, Dr. Weinberg decided that the work he was doing was really important. And so he wanted to continue the publication of the atlas. So he did continue his work. And this has now served as a source of data for a tremendous amount of research and has received a wide amount of media attention, particularly in an, area, in an era where we're sort of focusing more on the type of healthcare that we're delivering. We don't have time to talk about all the results of the Dartmouth Atlas and sort of everything that we've learned from it, but I just wanted to share some of the take home points that we've, we've gathered from doing this type of work over the past couple of decades. 
So first of all, we've learned that more is not always better. So more spending, more surgical procedures do not always lead to better outcomes. We've learned that much variation is unwarranted. And when Dr. Weinberg and his colleagues talk about unwarranted variation, they're referring to variation that's not driven by degree of patient illness. So like we talked about in the Stowe example, the kids in Stowe weren't any sicker, but they actually were receiving more healthcare. Um, and it's also not driven by patient preference. Preference. So we know that healthcare is not black and white, and we hope that our patients are participating in shared decision-making around their care, but we found that patient opinions and sort of patient input is not really driving variation. So if these factors are not driving variation, what is driving variation? And what we've learned is that care, variation in care is often driven by supply. So we know that actually more hospital beds lead to more hospitalizations and more surgeons lead to more surgeries. Um, and then practice culture, so sort of practitioner opinions on the, on the right type of care and, and the way that they feel that care should be supplied. So I wanna give an example of this. Um, and this, again, the adult data is also available online. So if you are interested, you can go and check it out. But this is a map that represents Medicare reimbursements per enrollee across the United States. And this is for the year of 2010. And I wanna make a couple of points about this map. So first of all, the darker colors represent higher levels of spending. And so you can see there's some bands sort of in the Southern United States in the Ohio River Valley, um, Southern California, Florida, that have particularly high spending. I wanna point out that this map is not broken down by state, and this is really important. So you'll see that the map is broken out into a number of small regions. And these regions are called hospital service areas. And these are small healthcare markets where most people living in that region get their care at a particular hospital or sort of healthcare center. This level of granularity is really important. So you can imagine that if someone came to Dartmouth and said, your rate of X procedure in the state of New Hampshire is super high, it would be really easy for all of us to say, well, that's because of what they're doing down in Manchester. That has nothing to do with what we're doing here. However, if they came to us and said, your rate of X procedure in Lebanon is quite high, then it really kind of forces us to look at our own practice patterns and to think about what we're doing in terms of delivering care. This next map looks at CMS hospital, qual hospital compare quality scores. And these scores represent sort of how well um, adult care is being provided according to guidelines in a number of adult chronic conditions. So I know these are not scores that we're largely familiar with in pediatrics, and we could have a whole nother debate about whether or not these scores actually represent quality. But I just wanted to sort of make the point that in the top map, you see that the areas of highest spending do not necessarily correlate to the areas of the best outcomes in the bottom map. And in fact, it almost looks like there's some degree of sort of inverse relationship in these mm. maps. So really we've learned, as I mentioned earlier, that providing more medical care does not always lead to um, improved outcomes. So why does this type of work matter? We know that healthcare is not gonna be delivered the same all the time in every place. So what, what do we get by understanding this? So first of all, making this kind of data available allows researchers and more importantly providers to understand what's normal. And we talked about the Stowe example that just understanding that the community next door had rates that were significantly lower than the rates in Stowe of tonsillectomy sort of forced people to look at their practice and, and, and change their practice. And if we look at this across small regions, then it really holds people accountable to kind of understanding the care they're providing and making sure that it's quality of care. Ultimately, we think that this should lead to higher quality. So it's really important to say that when we look at anything, we oftentimes don't know what the right rate is. So a procedure or an imaging study, we typically don't know what the right rate is. 
But we know that the vast majority of hospital service areas or communities sort of cluster around this average rate within a range. And then there are people who are outliers, both on the high end and the low end. And we think that those outliers are less likely to represent quality. And so understanding what's happening in those outlying regions can allow us to um, potentially educate those folks and, and lead to more guideline-driven care. Lastly, there are huge financial implications to this type of work. So Dr. Fuller talked two weeks ago about the fact that the United States, United States spends 18% of their GDP on healthcare. That number is increasing every single year. And so understanding where we're spending our money and kind of what type of bang we're getting for our buck is really important. So what about kids? Why does this matter within pediatrics? So first of all, variation to date is poorly understood in pediatrics. And I mentioned that data sets are hard to obtain. So Medicare serves as this great source of data for the adult population and allows us to look at patterns in care for sort of the entire population. Kids are insured by multiple insurance plans, both public and private. And so piecing together data that's really representative of the full pediatric population is challenging. We can use other types of data. So we can use survey data that's kind of inherently biased. Um, and we can pull data from electronic medical records, and we're getting better at doing that, and that's really sort of advancing this field. But in general, it's been hard to do this type of work in peds. Providing quality care at a young age can reduce costs and improve outcomes long-term. So we're all pediatricians because we feel like we can make a difference early in life and lead to many years of sort of happiness and health. Um, and so understanding the care that we're providing early on is really important. And then lastly, with regard to prescriptions in particular, there's less evidence available and there are fewer guidelines in kids. And there's a number of reasons for this. So first of all, there are ethical implications of testing medications in the pediatric population. There's a wide range of physiology between the ages of 0 to 18. And so understanding what medications have what impact sort of at every level of that range is challenging. Um, and so understanding what we are doing with prescription drugs is really important so that we can drill down and find out what areas need more work in particular. So now that we've set up a little bit of background, we'll kind of move into the results of our study. So looking at pediatric pharmacotherapy in northern New England specifically. So a little bit more background on our atlas. I kind of made it sound like Dr. Goodman had this idea, and then poof, we had this atlas. And it actually took a lot of work, as it turns out. Um, and there were a lot of steps in the middle. So first of all, Dr. Goodman went to the Charles H. Hood Foundation to ob obtain some funding to do this work. Um, and for those of you who don't know, the Hood Foundation is most classically sort of associated with dairy products in our region. But outside of their commitment to kind of dairy, uh, they have a really strong commitment to the pediatric population, to, to pediatric health in our region. And so they kindly provided a grant for our work. So then we had to get a data set. And I've talked about the challenges of this. So fortunately, uh, Dr. Goodman was aware that Northern New England has actually set up a mandate such that claims data or insurance billing data for both Medicaid and commercial plans now actually has to be made publicly available. And that data has to be available for people even to do research. And that's really unique. So there's only a couple of other states that have similar sort of system set up. And so this really allows us to understand the type of healthcare we're providing. So we got a data set from Maine, Vermont, and New Hampshire from 2007 to 2010 that encompassed about 950,000 kids. Before we started to analyze our data, we had to get a little bit of background. And so what we were able to find out was that pediatric prescriptions have been decreasing over recent years, but not uniformly. So we know that antibiotic use has been decreasing over the past decades. And we think that that's because there's been a lot of sort of effort on promoting best practices in antibiotic use. We become more <coughs> concerned about resistance patterns and sort of other problems associated with overprescribing. And so we've really focused on these medications. And we've ultimately reduced their rates a little bit. 
We know that um, antacids, so H2 blockers and PPIs have been increasing, as have most psychotropic medications. So medications that have direct CNS impact and are kind of targeting behavioral and psychiatric disturbances. We learned that studies to date looked mostly at payer type variation, so Medicaid versus commercial, and at large area variation, so state or regional level variation, but less was known about small area variation, and so we already talked about kind of the importance of understanding that. So our goals in this work were to quantify variation in our population, to understand drivers of this variation, to report variation across small areas, and to begin to assess patterns in particular cohorts of children. So we'll talk a little bit about our methods. We don't have to get into kind of all of the details, but just so you can understand how we started to do this work. So first we looked at commonly prescribed and interesting medications, and I have interesting sort of in quotation marks here. So we picked, um, we picked some medications to focus in on, and the way that we chose those medications was we tried to select medications that have an important, uh, um, a big impact in the pediatric population, but also some of those medications that I mentioned have been changing over the past few decades so that we could understand kind of patterns of variation and what might be driving those changes. We quantified prescriptions both by rate, so prescription fills per person year or per 100 person year, depending on intensity of use, and by prevalence, so annual percentage of the population with any use. Um, and we'll focus on rate today just to kind of simplify, but we did look at both of those. And then we looked at variation by payer type and by hospital service area, and those are those small uh, healthcare markets that we referred to earlier. So this table represents just sort of a breakdown of, of the general pediatric population in our region. We had almost 1.8 million person years, so years of follow-up for our 950,000 kids. 54% of these person years were commercially insured and 46% were Medicaid insured. So to talk a little bit about our findings now, these are the top 10 prescription drugs that we saw within our pediatric population in northern New England. And you can see that this is a mix of ADHD medications, there's some antibiotics here, there are some asthma medications, fluoride, and then you see one oral contraceptive pill. We'll talk in the next few slides about the medications that we decided to focus on, but while I have this up for people, I just wanted to talk about some of the medications that we didn't focus on, because I think there will be some questions about those. So first of all, we excluded fluoride from our total fills. And the reason is that we think we know what drives fluoride prescriptions, and that's local water fluoridation. So we didn't really feel like that was sort of an important thing to assess in this, um, in this particular study. We did not focus on asthma medications. And we know that these are very important medications within the pediatric population. But as such, we felt like they were really deserving of sort of a more in-depth study that could quantify both controller use and rescue medication use, and then sort of correlate that to things like uh, emergency room visits and PCP visits. So that's a great study to be done, but it was not done as part of our initial analysis. And then we also didn't dig further into oral contraceptives. And the reason for that is that we know that many um, young females are getting these medications at places that are not billing insurance claims. So think places like Planned Parenthood. And so we didn't feel like we could get sort of a complete picture of usage of those medications. So this figure here is called a turnip plot. Um, and each of these blue dots that you'll see represents one of the 69 hospital service areas in northern New England. The red dots represent hospital service areas that contain a children's hospital, and then those are sort of broken out further on the right and listed. And I've highlighted Lebanon in yellow primarily so you can see how we're doing. So this is overall annual prescription fills per child, and this is age, sex, and payer adjusted. And sort of the take home point here is that the range here is from three fills per person year to six fills per person year. So there's a two-fold variation across Northern New England. 
you might start to wonder, is this related to sort of urban location? Are there other clear drivers of this variation? Um, interestingly, both the low, and, low end and the high end are made up of fairly rural towns that I think are, are um, relatively similar to one another. And then here you can see, as I said, I just wanted to kind of highlight Lebanon. And I would encourage you all to sort of look at our other academic colleagues, so Burlington and Portland, as we go through this. Um, I'm not describing this to pass any judgment on our own prescribing patterns. I'm not showing this to pass any judgment on them. I just sort of want to make people aware of where we are. And then we can talk at the end about whether or not people have ideas about why we might be kind of where we are within this range. This is a map that just shows the same data kind of represented differently. And so the darker colors represent higher intensity of drug usage and the lighter colors are lower intensity. And you can see that the dark colors are really kind of scattered throughout Northern New England. So there's not any sort of particularly clear pattern here. So this is another turnip plot, and this one is set up a little bit differently. So this actually represents observed fills over average fills across our communities. And these are the medications that we decided to focus in a little bit more on. Um, over here on the y-axis, you can see that in the middle of the y-axis is the number one, and this represents the average. And so dots above that represent hospital service areas that are using more than average medications, and below that represent less than average. This extremal ratio down here at the bottom represents kind of the ratio to the highest to the lowest, so, so the overall spread of variation within these communities. So you can see that antibiotics, of all the medications that we studied, have the least variation. And again, we've already talked about kind of why that might be. We've really put a lot of effort into standardizing antibiotic prescriptions. As you go along, you'll see that ADHD medications are next. I've started these just to mention that this does not include alpha agonists. So it includes stimulant medications and non-stimulants, but not alpha agonists. We looked at those separately for kids with autism, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, so then you see antidepressants in the middle here. And then over on the far right, you see the medications that have sort of the greatest variation. And so acid suppressants vary almost fourfold across northern New England, and antipsychotics vary more than fourfold across northern New England. Um, I think when we think about this, this actually does make some sense. So uh, in terms of acid suppressants, the data to support their effectiveness are um, kind of, I don't want to say limited, sort of contradictory. And I actually think that Dr. Edwards is going to talk a little bit more about that in a couple of weeks at another grand round. Um, and then we're learning more about side effects associated with acid suppressants. And then antipsychotics have sort of few indications in the pediatric population. They have some challenging side effects, including metabolic side effects, extrapyramidal side effects. Um, and I think generally people have a much different comfort level with providing these types of medications. And so it makes sense to me that we see wide variation in these particular groups. So then I want to go through the medications individually. And again, this isn't for comparison, so we've, we've already compared. And the y-axis here is actually different depending on the intensity of usage. But just to sort of highlight where Lebanon sits. So this is antibiotics, and we're actually kind of on the low end of antibiotic prescribing. These are ADHD medications, and so we're much higher up here. Um, you can see, interestingly, that Burlington is sort of consistently at the bottom of the, of the children's hospitals, particularly when it comes to psychotropic medications. Antidepressants, we are way up here at the top, and we're prescribing twice as many antidepressants as Burlington, and actually three times as many as the lowest prescribing community, which is Colebrook, New Hampshire, um, which is not very far from here. These are antacids, and so we're at the very bottom. And I just wanted to put up a picture of Dr. Edwards um, because I think she's really encouraged us all to go to the evidence base when we're prescribing these medications. So I wanted to give her some credit for that. And then antipsychotics were right here, kind of in the middle of the pack. 
So after we looked at the overall spread, we wanted to take a look at payer type differences. And so this is another turnip plot. And this actually for each medication group, you'll see there's, um, there's two columns. So on the left, you'll see a column for commercial and on the right, you'll see a column for Medicaid. For antibiotics, you'll see that Medicaid gets a little bit more overall, but there's, you know, they're fairly similar between the two groups. But then when we get over to these psychotropic medications, so ADHD drugs and antipsychotics, you'll see that Medicaid children are consistently getting more medications and actually that the variation is much broader across Medicaid, across the Medicaid population. This is consistent with, um, with data that's been published previously. And so we know that Medicaid children actually receive more medications and particularly psychotropic medications. There's a lot of reasons that this might be happening. Um, importantly, though, we think that socioeconomic status certainly has an impact on health outcomes. And so kids who have sort of social stressors and other things associated with their so socioeconomic status may be more likely to require these medications. The other piece is that we're not sure if providers might have different thresholds for providing these medications within these two types of populations. And so I think you know, we can talk more about that at the end. And, and that's something that's still being discussed largely within the literature. So this is a summary of our findings in the general population. So we saw wide variation across hospital service areas, which was broadest for prescription antacids and antipsychotics. This suggests practice culture has an influence on prescribing patterns. So we see that even in our population, which is so sort of similar, the patterns that we see are quite different. We see that Medicaid-insured children have higher rates of prescription drug use than the commercially insured, and particularly for psychotropics. And within psychotropics, we also see more variation. So now we'll shift our attention and focus on a special population, and this is the population that I studied, which is children with autism spectrum disorders. We had a lot of discussion about sort of where to start our cohort level analysis or our disease specific analysis, and ultimately we picked this population for a lot of reasons. So first of all, as I think you're all aware, there are a lot of uncertainties surrounding autism, both the pathophysiology and the management of these disorders. We know that there's an increasing use of psychotropic drugs within this population. Most of this use is off-label, and there's little known about drivers of variation. So I just want to make a brief comment about this off-label usage. There are only two medications that are approved for use specifically for autism, and that's um, aripiprazole and risperidone. The other medications that are being used are really used to treat target symptoms. The DSM-4 did not allow the diagnosis of comorbidities with autism spectrum disorders. The DSM-5 does allow that. So this off-label use may actually be changing and is a little bit more sort of, of a logistical piece now that that's changing a little bit. We also don't know a lot about the rates of use of non-psychotropic drugs. So we've really focused in on the, on the drugs that these kids are getting to sort of target their behaviors, but we haven't looked at other medications very well within this population. So just to highlight some of the bigger studies that have been done recently on this topic, this is a study that was published in Pediatrics in 2008 by Mandel and colleagues. And this study looked at psychotropic drug usage among kids with autism who had Medicaid, um, who were insured by Medicaid. And it included about 60,000 kids. And so this study found that 56% of children with an autism diagnosis received at, at least one psychotropic, 20% were receiving three or more concurrently, and 18% of kids aged zero to two were receiving psychotropics. This is a similar study that was published more recently, but actually looked at one large commercial insurance plan across the country. So this is by Spencer and colleagues, and this included about 34,000 kids. 
And this found that 64% were using at least one medication, 15% were using at least three at a time. And these estimates, importantly, are higher than the previous Medicaid estimates. The study was done later, so this may reflect sort of an overall increase in usage. Um, but it's, it's sort of interesting because the pattern is opposite what we see in the general population where Medicaid kids are getting more medications. <coughs> this is just some of the non-evidence base surrounding this disorder. Um, so in case you were curious, Jenny McCarthy's son has actually outgrown his autism. And I actually just put this up to kind of highlight the need for continued research in the area of autism spectrum disorders. So our methods for this population, we use the same data set that I described previously, and we identified kids with ASD diagnoses by ICD-9 code. So these are the codes that we used. Um, I just want to point out that some studies in the past have excluded childhood disintegrative disorder because children with this particular disorder tend to have kind of a uniquely severe presentation. We included them in our analysis, but they made up a, a very small number of our overall person years, so we don't think that they had a tremendous impact on our data. We included all observed years for each patient with a single ASD diagnosis, and this will become important when we start to talk about our results. So if this yellow line represents sort of the time period over which we observed data, so 2007 being on the left and 2010 being on the right, if a child was diagnosed early on, then almost all the data we have for that child comes after diagnosis. But if a child is diagnosed in the middle of this time period, then we have data from both before and after diagnosis. And if they're diagnosed late, then most of the data that we have is actually pre-diagnostic. And so this is important. We think it probably has a couple of impacts on our data. So first of all, we may actually underestimate the amount of psychotropic drug use in this population, because you can imagine that if a young kid was diagnosed here, get, there we go. Um, if a young child was diagnosed here at the end, then they may have been healthy in the years leading up to their diagnosis and so not using a lot of medications. The other thing though that this does for us is it gives us some information about what medications kids are receiving before their diagnosis of autism, which, which was sort of interesting to take a look at. So we measured use of select psychotropic and non-psychotropic drugs. We compared this usage to the general population we looked at variation by payer type again and across hospital service areas. So it's important to note that we limited our analysis of hospital service area <laughs> variation to 19 of the 69 hospital service areas in northern New England that had more than 200 children diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. And we felt like if we included areas that had two or three kids diagnosed, then it may not be a totally stable analysis. So we tried to limit to sort of our larger hospital service areas. So this is just a distribution of this population. And so we came up with um, 13,100 children, and that's about 1.4% of our total population. And that's kind of within the range of ASD prevalence. So we, we think that we uh, probably did a good job of accurately diagnosing, or of accurately identifying these kids. You'll see here that the total person years of follow-up are broken down by payer again, as we saw for the general population. And a much larger percentage of our ASD kids are insured by Medicaid plans than by commercial plans. And so we thought about this a lot as well, and I um, relied on our developmental team a little bit, Dr. Sam Loud and Maureen Kaplan, to help me to think about this a little bit. So one of the factors that we think might be contributing to this is that there are different eligibility criteria for Medicaid for children who have a disability. Um, and many states actually have specific legislation that 
that allows children with autism to, to be enrolled in Medicaid at higher percentages of the federal poverty level. And that's to ensure that those children are receiving adequate services and primarily to ensure that they continue to, that they can continue to be cared for within their home rather than having to sort of potentially be cared for in some other more intensive type of facility. We also wonder, as we talked about with the general population, if there might be a different threshold for diagnosis within these two populations. So are we potentially diagnosing kids with milder disease in the Medicaid population to ensure that they're getting services that they might not be able to get otherwise? And so we're still kind of pondering on this. Um, you can see that in looking at the person years of follow-up by age group, the five to nine age group and 10 to 14 are the largest, which was not surprising. And then I included this last column, the proportion of children with a second cohort inclusion diagnosis. And you can see that 90% of our children had a second diagnosis of autism. This is important because conveniently, about halfway through our data analysis, someone published a study that says when you're doing this type of work, having two diagnoses of autism is actually much better than having one for a representation of true disease. And so we felt kind of reassured that the vast majority of our children did have a second diagnosis during our time period. So these are the top drugs in the autism population, and you'll see that these are all psychotropic medications. So you don't see amoxicillin on here. I'll point out they're just all psychotropics. So we wanted to compare this usage to what we saw. We wanted to sort of quantify what the kids in the ASD cohort were getting and compare their usage to the general population. There's a lot of studies looking at intensity of, as I said, psychotropic use. There are not many studies that directly compare this to sort of a control population within a geographic region. So on this graph, the green bar represents kids with autism and the um, purple bar represents the general pediatric population. So in terms of overall fills, on the left here you see all medications, and this is all medications that we looked at, not just the ones that we focused in. So total prescription fill rate is about 16 and a half for our autism cohort and just under four and a half for the general population. So there's a three and a half fold difference overall. And then when we look at psychotropics, we see an eight fold difference between the autism population and the general. Does the general pediatric population include all those kids with autism yeah. as well? Okay. Mm -hmm. So then, and then the autism population is just those specifically sort of pulled out and stacked up against the general population. So then we broke down the psychotropic medications into the individual medications that we studied. And it's important to say that um, no one has sort of set up a diagnosis or no one has set up a definition of what psychotropic medications are important to study. People have variably included things like antiepileptics and excluded things like benzodiazepines. And we sort of picked the medications that were most similar to what other researchers have used and which we thought were important to look at in this population. So the biggest difference that we see here is in antipsychotics, um, for which autism child, children diagnosed with autism get about 16 times the amount of antipsychotics as the general population. ADHD meds have the lowest difference, but it's, there's still a five-fold difference between the population, and then the other medications sort of fall somewhere in the middle. Um, we also looked at rates of polypharmacy. So I talked about those other studies that identified how many kids were getting three or more drugs at once. And our rates were a little bit lower than those studies, but were generally similar. And I think that just really speaks to the need to continue to look at what happens when we have children on multiple psychotropic drugs starting at a very early age and what the long-term impact of that is. I think that generally these patterns were not surprising to us. We suspected that this population would use more psychotropic medications, but I think the degree of difference for some of the individual drugs was, was certainly interesting. What was surprising to us was when we um, kind of dug into looking at the non-psychotropic drugs. So we looked at the same non-psychotropics that we looked at in the general population, oral antibiotics and prescription antacids. 
And you'll see that overall, there is more antibiotic usage among children with autism, but it's not dramatically so. But for antacids, kids with an ASD diagnosis used threefold more than the general population. And so we were kind of surprised by this pattern. So we decided to break this down by age group to get a sense of where the majority of this usage was occurring. And so you'll see this big spike over here, ages zero to two. This is antibiotic fills per age group. And so in kids age zero to two who ultimately are diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder, you see that they used more than twice as many antibiotics as their sort of as the general population. And then the antacids are higher across the board, but again, we see bigger spikes in the age zero to two group and the age three to four group. So five times as many in kids zero to two and seven times as many in kids in three to four. So we've thought a lot about these trends and there's a lot of reasons that we think this might be happening. So first of all, there's increasing data to suggest that autism are systemic disorders that have immune impact, uh, impact on immune function, impact on GI function. So are these children presenting early in life with more infections and more reflux? Yes, we think they certainly could be. Um, the other things we've thought about, though, is whether these kids might be presenting earlier in life with kind of nonspecific symptoms, so continued fussiness or sort of spittiness or other things that maybe don't necessarily meet criteria to be treated with a medication, but for a variety of reasons, providers might have a lower threshold to give them a medication for these symptoms. Also, we think that they may not be communicating as well, so to get a kind of full sense of their experience may be challenging. The other thing that we have to think about, though, is that the average age of diagnosis of autism really varies widely and it depends on what type of disorder you have, but we know that a lot of kids are not being diagnosed until after age three, although our goal is now by age two. And so a lot of this usage is happening pre-diagnosis. Um, we're not establishing any degree of causation here, but I think it's important to just sort of think about whether these medications might be in any way sort of contributing to the pathophysiology of the disorder. There's a lot of people studying the microbiome and these medications are implicated in changes in the microbiome. And so we don't really know the long-term impacts of that. So just something kind of to continue looking at with this population. And then we wanted to look at payer type differences in this cohort. And so this table here represents the ratio of fills for Medicaid insured to commercially insured. And the column on the right is the general pediatric population. And we've already talked about that. So especially for psychotropics, we know that the Medicaid children are getting more medicine. Um, you'll see antipsychotics are 4.4 times higher uh, among Medicaid kids in the general pediatric population. But when we look at kids with autism, that pattern really goes away. So they are getting more, the Medicaid kids are getting more antipsychotics. But generally, the rest of these numbers are sort of clustered around one. And so this pattern of Medicaid kids getting more medications goes away. We wonder if we are just simply removing sort of the degree of disability as a variable. So we know that all of these children have been diagnosed with an illness and it's a similar illness. So is that just kind of making prescription patterns more similar? But we also wonder if we might not learn something from this population. So our sort of threshold for diagnosis in the two payer types is not any different in this population. And can we learn something and apply that to our patterns in the general population? You might think, well, these kids are all just getting more medications because we saw that they're getting a ton of medications, and so it probably doesn't vary at all. But next, we looked at the variation across small areas as we did for the general population. And you'll see that we still see basically a really wide variation across small areas. Um, antibiotics, again, we've come to a fairly good consensus about kind of prescribing these medications. And in this population, it actually looks like we've come to a fairly strong consensus about antidepressants as well. But you still see a lot of variation for ADHD meds and antipsychotics. I didn't put Lebanon up here, but we're basically in the middle of the road for all of these. We're not really an outlier on any of them. 
And then these are the these are the medications that just have lower rates of usage. I couldn't fit them all in one plot, but you see again wide variation. We are we do prescribe a lot of alpha agonists here to our autism population. Um, if anyone was curious, but again you just see that there's a really broad variation. So it's not fair to say, well, all the kids with autism are getting a lot of meds, and it's not varying by payer type, and it's not varying at all because we know that it's still varying by small region. So a summary of our findings in this population is that ASD children experience much more intense pharmacotherapy than the general population, higher rates of psychotropics, higher rates of non-psychotropics, especially in young kids. We see less payer variation and we still see broad HSA level variation similar to what we saw in the general population. So I want to talk just briefly about sort of what the future might hold for this type of work and this type of research. Um, so within our region, we certainly can do more cohort-specific work, so looking at specific disorders outside of autism, picking some different disease patterns. We can look at more medications. We can investigate those individual small areas, so kind of, as we talked about earlier, find the outliers and understand why those communities or hospital service areas are outliers. Um, we hope that this will lead to some discussion about developing best practices. So if people see that there's this really wide variation, they might start to wonder, well, what am I doing differently than this community down the road? And sort of people might start to have discussions about what's happening. Um, and we hope that we can encourage shared decision-making when evidence is not clear. And I think particularly in the autism population where there's a lot of questions about side effects of being on psychotropics long-term, um, this is a particularly important area. And then broader work, work within pediatrics, uh, having more advanced electronic medical record systems and being able to kind of mine data for that is gonna be really helpful as time goes on. And there's some um, academic centers that are doing great work with their electronic medical records and looking at the same type of data. We've seen more organizations starting to explore variation within their own population. So uh, the cystic fibrosis community has done a great job of looking at variation across different treatment centers and making that, that information available to kind of promote quality improvement. We see this in the Vermont Oxford Network and NICUs internationally looking at sort of what's happening in different NICUs in different areas. Um, and again, we hope that this will lead to more networking and just sort of trying to get an understanding of how healthcare varies across our pediatric population. So then conclusions are understanding variation may help to reduce excess and ultimately lead to better outcomes. This is important work in pediatrics as research is scarce. In Northern New England, prescription use varies widely across small areas, suggesting provider culture plays an important role in pharmacotherapy. And children with autism spectrum disorders experience intense pharmacotherapy, which does not vary by payer type. So these are my thank yous, everyone who worked on the Atlas, um, as well as some people who helped me put this presentation together. And then this is Lily, who was a baby when we started this project, and now she's a full-grown toddler. Well, it's very easy to see why she got the number one presentation award at the research society. So I, I'm going to take the liberty of asking the question. When there's not evidence or conflicting evidence or when there's uh, uncertainty, the general assumption is that more medication use is probably bad. Uh, but is, is there a way to link use to actually downstream outcomes? So, I mean, for some, that, for some situations, it may be that the low users are not providing quality care, the higher users are providing better quality care. So how do you get at that issue of what's the right amount of medication use 
when you're just looking broadly at you know use, not downstream outcomes and efforts? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And um, interestingly, is Dr. Barton here, Colleen? No, she's not. Okay. Um, oh, she is. She is. So I had this discussion with Colleen as we were sort of, as she was listening to me talk about my slides. Um, and in particular, one of the examples, so for Lebanon, you saw that we had the highest uh, antidepressant use of sort of anywhere in our region. And Colleen very, um, very helpfully pointed out, well, we know that de depression is like widely underdiagnosed. So maybe it's that we're actually doing a better job than our colleagues because we're identifying kids who are depressed and giving them medication so that they're not going out and having sort of bad outcomes long term. So you're absolutely right. We have to correlate this data with then what happens in terms of outcomes. And the Adult Atlas has done a good job of doing that over the years. And I think as sort of the data improves and we're able to kind of hone in on these specific areas that are outliers, we can start to see how their kids are doing. So does giving more medications in these communities lead to better outcomes? Um, Dr. Morden mentioned to me in a meeting last week that, uh, am I allowed to talk about this, the state of Maine? <laughs> that the state of Maine has actually come to us looking for more information on their data. So previously, they've been able to know sort of how individual communities are doing within the state of Maine, but they haven't been able to compare that to what's going on in other states as well. And so they want to know just that. Who are the outliers and what's happening in those regions? So I think we have to kind of start to connect those pieces to be able to make good judgments about what's right. That's right. So there's, there's sort of a feeling that regression of the mean would be a good thing, and I'm not sure that's actually true. Maybe it's true in some cases, but not at all. Um, I'm wondering how you deal with moving populations. So the bigger cities are going to have kids moving in and out more than, I assume, more than some of the more rural communities where the kids might stay there. And maybe the numbers are small enough that it doesn't affect big data sets. But you may be counting one kid two or three times if you're looking at it over five years. And this is a transient population in a big, busy center moving from one hospital region to another. Yeah, and um, I'll have you guys help me sort of answer this, but <laughs> we we followed kids individually by patient identifiers over time, and so we think we're not multiply counting <coughs> kids who are moving around. Is that correct? That they right? be in two locations at once. Yes. Right. right. And since you are following them over uh, four years, um, and assuming that prescriptions can only be written for a year's worth of refills, the care that they receive in their new location should reflect the providers in their new care location. That's sort of, sort of what we trust. Uh, but you're right, there, there may be some, some wiggle room uh, with that attribution uh, if people move very rapidly from place to place and carry their prescriptions with them. Uh, generally, because we have some, yeah, I don't think it's a big issue. Yeah. It's, it's less of a problem for cross-sectional analyses because the, the membership file has a location in every, for every month. So these are month-by-month -month eligibility. It, the, where it gets tricky is if you're following, if you develop a cohort, and you're trying to attribute a cohort over time to a place, or what we're doing now where we're developing medically complex children cohorts and attributing them to hospitals, yeah. you know, that assumes that there's stability of, of, of the population. It's, it works very well in northern New England. You're absolutely right. It's more problematic in urban areas. The other thing I just want to mention, and this is not a direct answer to your question, but in the adult data, we've actually found that when people move, they sort of adopt the patterns of the area that they're moving to, which is just kind of an interesting finding. So um, if they move to an area that sort of puts more diagnoses on people and more medications on people, then they adopt those patterns as well. So it's actually interesting to look at people moving in some senses to kind of see what's happening with them. Do, do they adopt the culture they <laughs> 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 Yeah, that's great. I just have one question. Do you, are you 
with the antipsychotics, are you aware that if the pediatrician is the initiator of the prescribing of the antipsychotics, or are they just the continuer of um, a psychiatrist or someone who has done prescribing? So good question. We don't know the answer to that. We don't know provider level details. And one of the things we've talked about is we attribute kids to a hospital service area based on their home zip code. And so you might start to wonder if kids are living in one region, are they getting specialty services somewhere else that sort of reflect different um, different prescribing patterns? And I think in the autism population, that is important. We know that most kids are getting the majority of their primary care in the area that's sort of local to them. Um, but specialty care may be a little bit different, and so we're not able to recognize who that provider was who started the antipsychotic. Um, you uh, did a nice job, Sam, of talking about the sort of future research and implications for a system, though, a, a, a hospital or a clinic or whatnot. I wondered, um, from your being involved with this project, your own, like what you, what you um, have done different about your practice, how you've reflected on things, and what recommendations you have for individuals about how they might use the, the pediatric atlas. Yeah, I mean, I think primarily this is about um, something that we've been promoting for a long time, which is evidence-based medicine. And so I think when you look at the spread, it's really important to sort of start to think about where do I fall in that spread, and then why do I fall there? So. So why do I practice this way? And is there a good reason that I practice this way? And so um, I think if nothing else, it really sort of promotes using evidence-based medicine. But we don't have evidence for every single thing we do in pediatrics for some of the reasons that I talked about. And so um, I mean, I guess just sort of going to my own local experts with questions about the particular type of medications I'm using or things, or things that I'm doing is an important thing for me going forward. Uh, that was a terrific talk. I, I particularly appreciate that you were presenting your, your own work. Uh, I have a question about the influence of individuals on this work. You gave a couple of great examples where it could be interpreted. For example, the tonsillectomy thing in Waterbury versus Stowe might have been just one otolaryngologist in each spot. Uh, use of uh, essence presence in Lebanon. Uh, do you have a way of getting at that in all these regions that that, that it's not just a, I got the sense that you were talking in a way about a general culture, but I can see in, in a less populated area like ours that one individual in each area could be influencing all this. And in fact, that might even be the rule rather than the exception. Yeah, so that's a really important point in our population. As you mentioned, it's small regions that we're looking at here. And we think that there are circumstances where we're looking at sort of the practices of relatively few providers. That was one of the important pieces in kind of limiting our autism cohort to the larger areas with the hopes that we were eliminating this one child getting a medication from one provider as kind of an having impact on our data. Um, but again, we don't have provider level sort of differences, and so we don't always understand if it's just one or two providers versus a hospital or a sort of <coughs> clinic culture or things like that. But that's a, good, a really good point. Yeah, to extrapolate it, it's, it's not only that single person's practices, it's their influence in the community about right. setting the, the expectations of the patient population of what Right, like Sam just said, if, if you didn't have uh, 
best practice, you would go to your local expert to ask what right. to do. Well, if everybody did that, everybody in the area would be following one set of rules, whether they were right or wrong. As with pediatricians who are influenced by that, um, that local expert. So, Alan? Have you thought of, or have you seen in literature, and I'm glad David's here, have you seen anything that would suggest there's a way to take this from big numbers to small numbers and reverse the, the, the process of analysis. In other words, I'm a patient. How do I fit here? And how can I use this data to, to, to improve my uh, interaction with the medical system? And right now, we're working with larger, larger numbers. It's hard even to know how to scale them down to smaller numbers. But what about from the other way? Is there anything that would be useful well, to the individual? I mean, I think that the I think what's useful, and, and, we've, and we've been sort of dancing around this, you know, is to recognize that there are different causes of variation, right? So um, in a general atlas, for example, we have uh, the, the pediatric work, and we have a whole section on, on quality metrics, where we know what the right rate is. And we know, in fact, that, that you know, if you will, quality is rationed implicitly, I guess, in, in you know, of certain types of care in certain places, in that not every not every region are kids getting um, evidence-based practice for you know some really basic stuff, okay, like lead screening in, in Medicaid populations, um, and and so how you approach that problem obviously is different than say the issue of tonsillectomy where you know the evidence. Um, even at its very best, no matter what the indication is, is rather weak. There's some signal of benefit. There are also trade-offs, and there are alternatives to, to having a tonsillectomy. This is true for PE tubes as well. And in that case, one would argue, and but it's not been well studied in children, it's been very well studied in adults, that you want this patient or family engagement in making that decision, that the right decision is not necessarily the right decision for everybody, and that physicians' values of what the right decision is is not necessarily the right set of values. Um, that, again, that has played out very nicely in adult medicine. It's terribly understudied and, and, and poorly understood the relevance of that framework for, for children. But so, and this is also, I think, important in the great vast areas of practice where we just, we don't, you know, I mean, your point exactly, I mean, we don't know how much antacid prescribing is right, okay? I think that one could make an argument, <laughs> I think it's easy to make the argument that the region that has the highest rate is probably not right, and that's concerning. So there is sort of hot spotting. And I can tell you that there are a couple of fairly large regions. Um, I mean, it's public information. I mean, I can say, you know, Bangor, Maine, for example, has very high utilization rates across disparate aspects of care. And the population is not notably different than many other places. Now, that is odd, and it's not a data problem. And, and I can't tell you in what way it's odd, but it's sufficient information that that's a place that needs to understand itself better. 
And it is concerning, I think, the quality of care that's delivered. So this is just to provide, but that's more at a system level. For the patients or the families, you can say, gee, that's a place where families ought to be asking a lot of questions. But most families don't even know the questions to ask. So it's much more of a system, I think, change than you would expect. Unfortunately, I think we're out of time. Thank you.